We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to the Water Cooler Podcast, edition 102. I'm Nick Cater, Senior Fellow at the Menzies Research Centre, where podcasts have become an important forum for having a deeper conversation about the issues of the day. As we record this podcast in late March 2023, we face the prospect of a referendum here in Australia in as little as six months' time, where we'll be asked to decide if there should be a new institution established to represent the views of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the corridors of power. It'll be known as The Voice, and its members will be unelected, and its existence will be enshrined in the Constitution, making it very difficult to abolish. If I sound a little hazy about the detail, that's because I am, along with almost every other Australian, I suspect, maybe up to and including the Prime Minister. The process of forming this proposal has been chaotic, the timetable rushed, and the debate has been driven almost entirely by emotion. Legitimate questions have been brushed aside by those supposedly in the know. To add to that, advocates of The Voice are split along multiple lines. It is, to say the least, confusing. Well, to get a better grasp on the issues at stake in this, the most consequential referendum for the best part of a quarter of a century, I'm joined by Amanda Stoker, a constitutional lawyer, a former Federal Assistant Attorney General, and now a Distinguished Fellow at the Menzies Research Centre. Amanda, welcome. Hello, Nick. Lovely to be with you. I thought that address you gave to the IPA recently on the question of the voice was comprehensive in that you you came at it primarily as a lawyer, a constitutional lawyer, but you brought in a number of other, I guess, questions that need to be asked at the very least before we make a decision on the voice. But first of all, to the fact that it is a constitutional change, let's talk about the constitution, where this will be lodged if it's passed. Anthony Albanese has described, on a number of occasions, he's described the Constitution as the nation's birth certificate. Have you got any problems with that definition? Because I have. Well, it's not accurate. The federation of Australia's states into a Commonwealth happened in 1901, as you know, and there's an awful lot of this country that happened before that point that shouldn't be lost. There's also, I think, a certain narrowness to the Constitution, far from being this wide-ranging cultural document, it's actually a pretty mechanical and legal allocation of responsibilities between the federal government and the states. It sets up the three branches of government, but it doesn't actually do much else. And so we need to, in this debate, be very clear-eyed about what we expect from our constitution. If we expect it to clearly allocate the responsibilities of government and the responsibilities of the three branches of government, well, that's fine. But if you expect it to give you a peace with history or healing or a sense of wholeness, then it's going to let you down very badly. That's not its purpose. It's never done that, and quite frankly, I think the vast majority of Australians don't ever look at it. And if they did, they'd be surprised by how dry and legalistic it is. It's really not about culture or history at all. No, it is our document of supreme law, 
that sets out the supreme law. Is that right? So that ev everybody is bound by this, including the parliament. The parliament cannot pass laws or take actions that are contrary to the terms of the constitution. So that is its primary purpose, is it not? To give us this final arbiter of what's fair and what isn't. Yeah, it is the supreme law in the sense that the Commonwealth Parliament can't pass laws that conflict with it. And any Australian has the right, if they're affected adversely by a law or a decision that sits contrary to it, has a remedy under the Constitution to get that sorted. There's there's great importance in the document, don't get me wrong, but it's not a social document. It's not a cultural document. It is a very mechanical legal instrument. It is deliberately inflexible. It's very difficult to change it, and that is by design. It's supposed to be difficult to change because we don't want to have Australians' founding structures of its democracy and government changing wildly. It's part of the reason we've had this period of great stability and relative peace in our country because our constitution is built for stability. That has its upsides and its downsides. It does give us that stability, but it also means that once you change something, if you find down the track you don't like it or you need to tweak it, it's mighty hard to do that. It seems to me that one of the, one of the ways in which this has been made more difficult than perhaps it should have been is really the lumping of two ideas together. Number one, that we should recognise Indigenous people or First Nations people, as they're sometimes called, in the Constitution. And number two, that there should be a voice to Parliament, actually a voice to executive government as well, but we'll come on to that in a minute. There is a voice there, a permanent voice, and both these things are included in the amendment to the Constitution, which we're being asked to approve later this year. Let's de-aggregate those. First to the recognition of First Nations people in the Constitution. Do we have any problems with that? Well, I think it depends. What's proposed by the Albanese government is certainly unacceptable. Most people, I think, on a, on a basic level, are prepared to accept the idea that there is a history of Australia that is significant and important and occurred before the arrival of white settlers. That shouldn't be a controversial proposition. I query whether or not the Constitution is a necessary place to do that. Given that, so few people look at it and it actually, in the day-to-day -day life of Australians, isn't front of mind when they think about culture and history. That said, I think most people can understand that the need to recognise that there was a history beyond what occurred in 1788 and the near term from there onwards is a reasonable thing to do. There's a reasonable question to, though, to ask and say, we do recognise our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters an awful lot. There's welcomes to and acknowledgements of country at many, many functions. Sometimes it's done almost to excess. There's a significant amount of teaching in our school curriculum and in our universities about the significance of Aboriginal culture. And I think there's more appreciation than ever across society of the role that Aboriginal people play. You could do it 
But query whether that's the best way to do it or whether it would really get to the heart of what people are trying to do here, and that's make lives better for the approximately 20% of Aboriginal people generally living in very remote places who have subpar life outcomes, whether you measure that by longevity or safety or domestic violence rates or education levels or employment records. There is that 20% roughly that aren't getting what they should out of life. And it's hard to see how a statement of recognition in the broad terms in the constitution would do anything about that. Yeah, I'm almost on board with the idea we could put a recognition of First Nations people in the preamble. I was almost on board with that until we get to the point where you get a additional layer to that, which is put, being forward, poured by Noel Pearson and others, that we should recognise essentially three categories of people that have gone to make this great nation of ours. First of all, Indigenous people. Secondly, the British. And then thirdly, this sort of multicultural jumble sort of thing that's happened from about 1967 onwards. That, that, that's when I go, uh-uh, no, 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 we are really now in the territory of defining people by, by, by race, by biological essentialism. And that is just a no-no for me. I'm sorry I pulled the plug at that point. How about you? Look, I think the idea that we should be acknowledging everybody who's made any kind of a contribution is a mistake. If you are doing it by that measure, why aren't we acknowledging our veterans? Why aren't we acknowledging emergency services workers? Why aren't we acknowledging the great researchers who are responsible for medical advances from which we all benefit? It could go on forever. But to ground this stuff in identity politics, on attributes with which we are born and over which we have no control is to take, I think, our society and culture down a negative path. The great beauty of democracy and the beauty of our society is that it is intended to be, and when it operates properly, it is colourblind. We aren't defined by any biological characteristic or limited by the colour of our skin, the colour of our eyes, the colour of our hair, our sexuality, our sex, any of those things. And to introduce, particularly in our constitution, what is essentially a genetic precondition for recognition actually takes us down a pretty ugly path. And it go, for me as a migrant, if I can speak as a migrant, or be somebody <laughs> who's lived here for more than half his life, more than 30 years, it just goes against the whole deal as I saw it when I arrived as a migrant and signed up as a citizen. And that was everybody in this country has equal chance to succeed and everybody in this country deserves to be given equal respect and whether you've been here for five minutes or 500,000 years or whatever I exaggerate but there is no difference in the way you were treated certainly not before the law and certainly there should be no difference but the way you can expect to be treated by your fellow citizens and I think a lot of migrants feel that very very strongly because it's why we were so attracted to this country why we felt so at home why we felt part of the project from day one and part of the strength of this country, at least up until recent times, is that people genuinely have been judged by their behaviour, by what they do and what they contribute or what they don't contribute, rather than by anything as superficial as their identity politics. And 
We shouldn't underestimate the importance of the deep equality that comes by truly judging people by what's on the inside in making us such a free, fair and prosperous country. There is a reason why places that overemphasise these sort of tribal characteristics go down the gurgler, and it's because it is not a recipe for equality, freedom and prosperity. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. I'm also struck by the idea of citizenship and the fact that is the institution, if you like, that binds us together as a nation. And I don't believe that's made a great deal of in the Constitution. You can correct me. But it's just, it's just what we accept as being our overriding common loyalty to this country, that we all have a stake in it and we're all going to make it work and we all stand on equal terms. So that concept is developed over millennia and it's developed particularly strongly in new countries if you like like here in the United States where it becomes the thing that becomes really important when you're not defined by race you're defined by just the fact that you're part of this great project and without it you go back to tribalism so I'm very keen to avoid that and I just fear that heading down the path of separating people in the constitution according to their racial origin is problematic. Yeah, I think that's right. What troubles me about the proposal that's been put forward is that it really does prey on the goodness and goodwill of Australians. Australians really do want to see that group of largely Aboriginal people who are living in appalling conditions in some remote places. They really do want to see those people have every opportunity to reach their full potential. And that's quite a beautiful thing. But this proposal is crafted around a logical fallacy, and that is the idea that because some other things have been tried in the past and they didn't work, then this must work. There's actually been no evidence presented to show how this proposal is going to be effective in improving the life outcomes or closing the gap for that outstanding 20% of people. And in the absence of any clear articulation or any evidence as to how that might work, Australians should be quite sceptical of it. The closest thing we have had to something like this was legislative, it wasn't in the Constitution, and it was ATSEC. And it was, I think it's not unreasonable to say, an unqualified disaster. It didn't achieve what it was set up to do. It was ineffective in improving life standards. It cost a bomb without delivering outcomes. It was prone to corruption and it was ultimately abolished. Now, if that experiment didn't work out, 
Why are we now, 20 years down the track, saying it didn't work out last time when it was just legislation. This time, let's do basically the same thing but shove it in the Constitution where it can never be changed. And that should lead us to say, why is this happening? And my view is that it has a lot more to do with entrenching streams of funding to an Aboriginal elite who benefit handsomely from it And it's a lot less about making life better for the little girl or boy in a remote community who is not sufficiently safe or fed or cared for in a health sense or educated day to day. Now, since you spoke at the IPA, we've got we have a little bit more detail. Anthony Albanese last week announced that they'd reached agreement with the consultative committee that they've been talking to on this about the form of the questions. What more has it told us? And does it make you feel more comfortable or less comfortable with the voice? Well, I answer some of the questions. It tells us that the body is crafted to have an advisory function and it's not intended to have a veto on policy or laws. Now, that's significant, but as Prime Minister Albanese has made clear, it'd be, to use his words, a brave government that didn't follow its recommendations. And so... That presents the very concerning situation where you don't have an actual veto, but you have a practical one. A practical one in the political sense, because a government could expect to be fighting on a number of fronts if they chose not to follow the advice of this advisory body. But there's also a risk transferring the work that should be properly done by the parliament in in making laws and setting policy and being accountable for that, transferring the final say to the judiciary, to the courts, it tells us that the voice is intended to cover both the work of the parliament and the work of the executive. Now, what that means is that if cabinet or a minister who is a cabinet minister doesn't follow the advice of the body, then that decision will be subject to review before the courts to ensure, for instance, that the right factors were taken into account and given the right amount of weight in the minister coming to that decision. And that means that ministers' work will much more readily, when it comes to making and setting policy, end up before the courts. I don't know about you, Nick, but... You might not like politicians, but at least you've got a chance every couple of years to tell them what you think at the ballot box. Yeah. Judges never face that. And they often live, lead lives, and I don't mean this in an overly critical way, that are not like the lives of most Australians. It is pretty rarefied. They are generally pretty well off. And by nature of their role, they're not mixing with the many different types of people that make up Australian society. And yet that's who we would be transferring the final say to on matters that are subject to the input of the voice. Um, So that's something we've learned and that's something that's problematic. There are more, but I'll leave it there for a sec. That means we're in the judge's hands. There may well be members of judiciary who take a perfectly reasonable view of this and say, well, look, Yes, I can see you've consulted, you had this meeting, you sent this that document, you've, the consultation has taken place, therefore that's the end of the matter. But it does leave a lot of scope for more activist 
members of the judiciary to take this anywhere they want, right? You couldn't have listened to them. You say you've listened to the voice, but you couldn't possibly have listened to it properly. Otherwise, you wouldn't have taken this course of action. Yeah, um, and you're right. Not all judges will be terrible, but the more structural, more important question, is it right that the final say should be with judges when um, we elect people to do certain things and... It is not for them to be held accountable before judges, but for them to be held accountable before electors. The other thing to consider is that in the present High Court, the judges there, and I say this with respect, they're all very, very qualified and held in high esteem, but they were prepared to find on the basis of Aboriginal people's metaphysical connection with the land of Australia, a right for a person not born in Australia to be excluded from the operation of the Migration Act. Now, that seems to me to be a fairly long bow to draw, and yet they are very capable, very well qualified and very respected judges. And so at least in a system of parliamentary accountability, you can rejig the course that policy takes in the event that it's not right. Once the court says something, then it goes and you don't have a way to adjust what the court's decisions might be. Let's go to some other issues around this. But first of all, I think one that's fairly fundamental and we don't talk about it enough. To what question is this the solution? What policy problem are we trying to solve with this voice? The ostensive reason for the voice, which is that it will give Aboriginals a chance to be heard in the corridors of power. That seems to be redundant in Nero, where we have a number of Indigenous representatives in Parliament, i.e. voices in Parliament, and it's on the floor of the House where they can make a really important intervention into public policy. So if, if not the voice, what else? Is it, is it in part an extension of the, um, the feeling of of regret that some people have that the nature of colonisation or the fact that we had colonisation at all? Is it sort of a second apology or, or what is it? I, just sent, I sense that there's some lack of clarity in what we're actually supposed to be doing here. There, there is a lack of clarity. Um, to the extent that there is a justification in the minds of ordinary Australians, it's the idea that there is still a cohort of Aboriginal people who... Um, aren't getting the most out of life, I think, by most objective measures. But there's no evidence of how this will remedy that concern. If the problem is about consultation with grassroots Aboriginal communities, well, when I was in the Senate and we would go around to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander places um, on various committees, the overwhelming feedback was that they are consulted to the hilt there are a bevy of bodies at the federal and state level that concern themselves with negotiating with, consulting with and hearing from Aboriginal groups. And so it's not the ability of us to listen to and hear from Aboriginal people at the grassroots is the problem. It's not the ability of Aboriginal people to get heard in the federal parliament. There's 11 in there at present that over it's an overrepresentation as compared to their proportion of the population i don't have a problem with that of course but they're doing a great job in their different ways 
of representing people from their patch of all walks of life. Um, and let's face it, not all of them support constitutional change of this kind either. It, the proposal is founded on this wrong-headed assumption that there can even be one voice for Aboriginal Australia. And you only need to look at politicians like Linda Burney, Jacinta Nampajimpa Price and Lydia Thorpe to see that Aboriginal people are capable of wildly different thinking, different values, different politics and different solutions to the problems we face, just as people of any other skin colour are capable of having those differences of opinion. So if there is no one voice of Aboriginal Australia and to the extent that we have um, government bodies to do this kind of consultation, it is happening um, almost to the point of frustration <laughs> and, and over-consultation. And we've got capable, smart Aboriginal people stepping up to serve their country at the highest level. Um, it's really hard to know what it is this thing is supposed to achieve. Yeah, that point about there not being one Aboriginal voice, this is what's bedeviled relations between Indian settlers and the original inhabitants of this country since 1788. You know, when Captain Arthur Philip came, he was explicitly requested to seek agreement with Aboriginal people, but of course they found, by the nature of a hunter-gatherer society, you don't have even a sense of overall nationhood, certainly not on the whole continent of Australia, no sense of that, let alone any, any body that has authority over, over the tribal group. So this is, it, it, if we couldn't fix it then, if we couldn't find the, the one voice who we could have a, a sign a treaty with, as occurred in New Zealand with the Treaty of Waitangi, that wasn't possible here. Why do we think we can suddenly find it now? Yeah, and the idea that there is one voice for Aboriginal people or that all Aboriginal people think the same on various policy matters, I actually find that pretty offensive. <laughs> we wouldn't say that about people of any other racial background. We shouldn't say it for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people either. If we're saying we don't like this suggestion, as a way forward, we're not really keen on this one, it seems to me. It behoves us to start suggesting other ways forward, doesn't it? We can't just be the reactionary reactionaries who just say no. We have to be. We have to look at this and say, look, clearly this is. There, there's a long way to go before we get to a point where we can consider that Aboriginal people as a whole do have equal opportunities and are thriving in the way that the rest of us are. What is the way forward for that? Look, I think that's a really fair question and that those who oppose this option do need to do more than just point out its problems. They need to engage with potential solutions. Now, there, because there are so many different types of Aboriginal communities all facing different problems, the solutions might look different in different places. But some of the proposals that have great potential, that don't get much of a look in, 
include that which was put forward by Jacinta Price when she was working with the CIS to give native title holders more opportunity to aspire to the things we know make for a good, stable home life, like the chance to build your own home, to be able to get a mortgage. I mean, most, most people don't realise that a native title holder can't go to the bank and get a mortgage to go and build a house or to set up a business and go into a commercial role in which they are in charge. That is not an option for native title holders because of this communal kind of structure. So more pathways to allow economic development of native title lands in a way that suits the culture of that particular group would, I think, be a step in the right direction because it brings jobs and prosperity to the places where those who want to live on country are. There's been great success in the life outcomes for the about 80% of Aboriginal people who live in urban areas where they are achieving life outcomes that are pretty close to or equal to their non-Aboriginal neighbours. And so we've got to look at what's different there. Some of the pathways to change have included investment in boarding school education, for instance. People who have had that kind of opportunity to have an immersed education do much better. And that, I think, is a significant thing to acknowledge, particularly when we know that school attendance rates and truancy are really very bad in remote communities. There's a lot of different ways that we can do this, but ultimately it's not promoted by providing for a really and exclusive kind of Aboriginal culture. The very nature of culture is that it grows and changes over time in a way that's really positive. If we can equip Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians to take from Western culture that which serves their life and their goals and take that from Aboriginal culture, which nourishes them and helps to take them where they want to go, then so much the better. But at the moment, there is an attitude of Aboriginal exceptionalism that really does weigh against that kind of integration of the two cultures in a way that can be a net positive both for the individual and for the broader society. Yeah, I think you're right. That principle of exceptionalism, that, that's, that notion of exceptionalism, which was really started to become a feature of Australian policy in the 1970s, well-intentioned as it was, seems to me to be the problem. And you've pointed to the land rights issue. Let's just go to this a little bit more directly. The fact is that in the Northern Territory, outside of Alice Springs, Darwin and probably Tennant Creek, you are not allowed to own your own home. You are not allowed... There is no such thing as privately rented accommodation since nobody is allowed to buy the title over a piece of land and therefore the house that's on it. There's only one type of housing that's permitted and that's essentially government-provided housing, state-run housing, and of course that can get pretty pretty run down pretty quickly. So this is extraordinary that in every other culture in the rest of the world we say property rights are fundamental to, to be giving people the opportunity to get ahead and make something of their life. But we're saying that peculiarly for this one group of people 
in this one part of the world, it's not the right thing. I think we, we've made a fundamental error there and we have to correct that because until we do, I don't really see how the problems are going to be solved. And let your very, if I could just extend my question or rather comment a bit longer, the point you made about too about the difference between the outcomes for urban indigenous people and those in those remote and rural communities but principally those remote communities is very important because when we look at the violence that we've seen the absolute breakdown of family life that we've seen that was reflected on the streets of Alice Springs and elsewhere that is all occurring on the towns that are on the edge of those areas where those remote communities are. Like, we're not seeing it in, in Kellyville <laughs> or, in, uh, <laughs> or in Paddington in, in Brisbane. It's not happening there. It's happening... In, uh, it, it is clearly people from those remote communities where the most dysfunction is. We've got to be more specific, haven't we? Instead of trying to do things somehow will benefit all Aboriginal people we should focus attention on those who really are in most need. Yes, and that brings me to another thing we don't know about the voice. Um, We don't know which Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people would be on it, how many of them, how they might be chosen. We don't know whether they would be voted in or whether it would be chosen by some other method, maybe appointment by government or by local elders or using a decision-making method of particular tribes. We don't know whether they're going to be paid or not. We don't know whether they will be local bodies of the kind that you've just identified might be able to have some understanding of local conditions and local needs, whether they would be regional or national and akin to a chamber of parliament or perhaps all of the above. And so there's plenty here that remains unexplained in a way that really doesn't help an Australian, whatever their background of goodwill, to be able to make an assessment for themselves of whether this can do any good at all. Finally, look, looking ahead, as Conservatives, we have, we strongly believe in civil debate, in constructive debate, and in not dividing the country. How do we progress from here until the referendum in the final quarter of this year and indeed beyond that to ensure that this becomes a debate that is polite, respectful and is not one that splits the country wildly? Um, Look, I think it's important that while there are lots of problems with the proposal, those questions are raised with respect and with that spirit of genuine interest and desire to help make things better. I think if everyone's in that place, it will promote civility in the debate. Now, that's not enough, of course. As as my friend Jacinta Price says, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and that's her assessment of this proposal. But I think all those involved should try their very best to conduct themselves in that spirit. We have the unfortunate situation where those in the yes camp have largely to date tried to say that to have any view other than yes is a racist position. That's the basis upon which Albanese initially refused to produce a publicly funded pamphlet to explain the different position. 
and they said, we don't want to be funding and distributing racist material. Implicit in that is the suggestion that it is a racist position to have questions about this, when the fact is the Constitution belongs to all of us and this is a debate that affects all of us, even if we are doing it with a view to solving a genuine and serious problem. And that predominantly affects Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Amanda, thank you for joining us on this Water Cooler podcast. I think that what these podcasts are able to do is tease out issues that we may not have been thought of or we may not have thought through properly. So you've certainly done that today. Thank you very much for joining me. And we'll be doing more of these, I think. Thank you. It's my pleasure entirely. Thank you so much, Nick. You've been listening to another Water Cooler Conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Thank you.